Hello everyone and welcome to episode 94 of the History Hotline. My name is Diana Lynn Cook and as always I'll be your host today. Now today's episode is going to be about um, two people called William and Ellen Craft and it's the start of our series, little mini series, on the presence of African Americans in Britain at a variety of points um, in the 19th and 20th century. This week's episode and next week's episode will look at the presence of African-American abolitionists in Britain, formerly enslaved people um, that travelled from the United States to Britain, despite Britain's own issues with race um, and the way that they also had formerly enslaved um, people in the colonies in the Caribbean. Um, now, Hakeem Adi, in his book, African and Caribbean People in Britain, um, says, and I quote, Despite the difficulties faced by many African and Caribbean people in Britain, African-Americans, especially those who were fugitives from slavery, often viewed it as a safe haven. And in his book, he quotes um, a man, William Powell, who was formerly enslaved and says, The change is so sudden that I can hardly believe my senses. I feel for once in my life a man indeed. It was definitely the case that African-Americans were moving to Britain for employment or for seeking refuge, um, but around 100 of the arrivals uh, before 1861 to Britain were actually engaged in anti-slavery activities, so abolitionist movements um, in a variety of sorts. It was very difficult for African-Americans to make this trip, as American authorities would often deny passports to them on the grounds that they were non-citizens. And it was a man called Henry Highland Garnet who was a prominent African-American abolitionist and one of the first people to obtain a passport for his trip to England in 1861. And this week and next week's episode, we'll be looking at some of the abolitionists that made that trip. Now, ones that we won't focus on, um, but are you know notable names that you may or may not know, Nathaniel Paul, Moses Roper, Charles Lennox Remond, Harriet Jacobs, Frederick Douglass, William Wells Brown, Martin Delaney, Alexander Cromwell, Sarah Parker Remond, Ida B. Wells, and of course, William and Ellen Craft, who we'll be thinking about today. William and Ellen's story is actually quite extraordinary. Um, they were involved in abolitionist activities um, and themselves fled enslavement in America. And their story is just remarkable because it, it spans not only um, into their time in England, but also time working in West Africa as well. And then back in America um, at a later point in their life. We are going to focus on their early life and then their time in Britain as well, more so than their time in West Africa. Um, but that is something that is also part of their story that can be researched for sure. William and Ellen Craft are known for one of the most ingenious escapes from enslavement as they began their plan for freedom in December 1848 and made the journey of over a thousand miles from Georgia to Pennsylvania in quest for their freedom. William was born in 1824 in Macon, Georgia and that was where he met his future wife Ellen um, at the age of 18 when he was first sold to settle gambling debts at that point, he was split from his family members as they were all sold to different slaveholders to pay these debts that his first master had racked up. He was apprenticed as a carpenter and sold with those skills. Ellen was born in Clinton, Georgia in 1826. Ellen was born to a mixed race enslaved woman called Maria, who was raped by her plantation owner, a man called Major James Smith. Being at least three-quarters European, her skin was very fair and she resembled her white half-siblings, who were her enslavers' legitimate children. 
Smith's wife gave the 11-year-old Ellen as a wedding gift to her daughter, Eliza Cromwell Smith, to get the girl out of the household and remove the evidence of her husband's infidelity. William and Ellen first met when Ellen was 16 years old and William's first owner sold him into another family to settle his gambling debts. Before he was sold, he also saw his parents being separated and his sister, also enslaved, being sold to different owners. And so, when they were able to get married at age 20, partly because it was in the interest of Eliza Cromwell Smith's new husband, Dr Robert Collins, having seen his own family sold off into slavery when he was younger, he decided he didn't want to have a family in slavery. So during the Christmas of 1848, the couple planned their escape. The pair wrote a memoir, ten years after the fugitive slave law was passed, entitled Running a Thousand Miles for Freedom. And that's where a majority of the information uh, for the next part of this episode will come from, thinking about their escape and what they did um, as they fled uh, the United States to Britain. Now, their escape was probably one of the most remarkable parts of their story because Ellen used, you know, the advantage of her fair skin to pass as white um, as they travelled by train and boat um, and headed north to escape and get to a free state. Um she dressed as a man at the time because it wasn't customary for a white woman to travel alone with a male um, enslaved person. That wouldn't have been acceptable. That would have raised too many heads. So she um, passed as a white man, essentially. She also had to fake having a sickness and an illness because she couldn't actually read or write. She was illiterate. She wasn't taught to read or write when she was enslaved. So she held her right arm in a sling. So anytime she was asked to sign her name, she said she couldn't because she literally had her arm. She dyed her hair and had William cut it for her to act as if, you know, she really was a man. And as I mentioned before, William was a trained carpenter. So the money he would make, um, which was significant for an enslaved person at that time, he would use to buy her clothes so that she could obviously pass as a man and not be in women's clothes. William actually acted as her personal servant. Um, and that was really common at the time as enslaved people often accompanied their masters during travel. So they didn't expect to be questioned. However, they were detained um, at one point during their journey. Um, and obviously this would have most likely scared the life out of them if they were found out, you know, who knows what could have happened to them. Um, but thankfully, um, they were let off due to sympathy from passengers and the conductor. Um, they were asked for proof that William was indeed Ellen's property. Of course, they didn't have any proof of that, um, but they passed um, and they weren't stopped again in the end. Their escape is a really important one. Um, it's probably one of the most well-known um escapes from enslavement probably close to William Henry Box Brown who we're going to be thinking about next week actually um and I won't tell you more about his story because it is fascinating but you'll have to tune in next week um Box obviously is not his real middle name but that might give you a hint about what his escape was like so William and Ellen Craft arrive in Pennsylvania a free state um on Christmas morning in 1848 as innovating as their escape was, they are not the only ones that escaped in a similar way and they aren't, Ellen Craft anyway, isn't the only woman that kind of passes as a free white man um, in order to escape slavery. There was a woman called Clarissa Davis of Virginia um, and she took to New England to get to freedom. There was a woman called Mary Weems from the District of Columbia who was only 15 and she also escaped to freedom 
and Mary Milburn, who also escaped as a male passenger on a ship. Um, and so there were all these kind of different um, ways of escaping. You know, we've got the Underground Railroad. There are so many uh, ways, and we're going to be speaking about another type next week, featuring a box. The crafts arrived in the free north and ended up settling in an area called Beacon Hill in Boston, which was a free black community um, in that state. They were married in a Christian ceremony and Ellen Craft actually poses in her escape clothing for the photograph um, and that's where that kind of engraving we have of them comes from and it was used as abolitionist uh, material in order to continue um, the conversation about abolition and to fight for that freedom. Um, they began to make public appearances and talk about their story, about their escape and speak up against slavery. You know, they still had family that were enslaved. It wasn't as if they had run away from it, set up a new life and never looked back, you know. They knew the importance of having this abolished for absolutely everybody um, and not just, you know, happy that they were free themselves. However, there was a big spanner in the works um, as they were kind of building up kind of a reputation as abolitionists and speaking out in papers and giving talks, you know, really big audiences, you know, up to a thousand people in some parts of the country. The Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 is passed. The Fugitive Slave Law was passed by Congress and it was an act as part of the Compromise of 1850. The act required that all enslaved people be returned to their owners, even if they had fled to a free state and were found there. It meant that federal government had a responsibility for finding, returning and trying escaped enslaved people and making sure they were returned back to the people um, that owned them, shall we say. A month after this act was passed, Collins, who was a former owner of William and Ellen Craft, sent bounty hunters to Boston to capture the crafts as he knew they were there. They travelled from Macon, all the way north, intending to capture them and take them back to enslavement. However, when they arrived in Boston, they were met with resistance um, from Bostonians, not just uh, black, free black people, but also white Bostonians who were also fighting for abolition in the area. It was a kind of at this point where I guess the crafts felt that to be truly free and safe um, from enslavement or capture they would need to leave the country completely because that law was going to be in place for a long time. And whilst there were groups trying to resist the new bill, um, it kind of wasn't, nothing was really happening in that front or there wasn't, there wasn't really a light at the end of the tunnel of that law being repealed, shall we say. Um, a group called the Boston Vigilance Committee um, helped them, protected them and led them around different safe houses and also were still fighting back against that bill. Um, in order to kind of protect them and to protect others, but in the case of the crafts, to protect them until they could leave the country. It got so serious with the the, um, the crafts and their um, former enslavers who actually ended up appealing to the President of the United States. You see how far people will go to, to enslave and entrap and uh, exploit people? It always... They, stuff like this always blows my mind, but... Millard Fillmore was president at the time. They asked him to intervene so they could regain their property. And that really just says it all, doesn't it? Um, the president actually agrees and says, yes, the craft should be returned to their um, former owners and authorises the use of military force 
if necessary, to take them back. So they have to leave the country. There is absolutely no way that they can stay, even in the free north, even in Boston with groups like the Boston Vigilance Committee helping them. They can't do it. They have to go. And England is the place they choose. The pair write in their book, and I quote, It was not until we stepped upon the shore at Liverpool that we were free from every slavish fear. We raised our thankful hearts to heaven and could have knelt down like the Neapolitan exiles and kissed the soil, for we felt that from slavery. The crafts were uncertain if they would ever be able to return to America, with the prospect of abolition not really looking like it was in the view of um, the country's um, future. It wasn't until 1865 that um, slavery was abolished in America, and at this point it's about 1850. Um, And so you can imagine why they ended up staying in Britain for nearly 20 years. They were in what we know as a transatlantic exile. They were able to obtain an education, a living, and ended up having a family. Uh, Ellen, as we mentioned before, was previously illiterate, but she was able to learn to read and write. Um, And they continued to fight uh, for the abolition of slavery in America and were very vocal abolitionists, talking about their their time enslaved, their escape uh, and the situation for those left behind. Now, remember, both of them had families that were still enslaved, mostly in um, in Georgia, where they were born. But for all they knew, they could have been anywhere. Whilst in London, they were based at a boarding house um, at 12 Cambridge Court in Hammersmith, which is an area of London. I mean, that now has a blue plaque actually on it um, as a part of a recent campaign to honour their lives and the work that they did for abolition. A few months into their exile in Britain, uh, William Kraft admits that he has a father, brother and sisters that are still enslaved in the US and that Ellen has a mother and a grandmother who were, and I quote, dragging life dragging out life in bondage never turning their backs on their family back home it took about six years um, but the newcastle current reported that by his own ability he had tracked down his mother and liberated her from enslavement and was working on purchasing his sister's freedom from her new orleans owner he had raised enough money um, through his sales of the engravings of ellen in her masculine disguise and with donations from friends in Britain um, to be able to purchase his mother from enslavement. Then they were able to locate Ellen's mother, Maria, who was in Georgia, and raise funds to reunite the two in England. I think, personally, whilst their story is so remarkable, the story of their escape and the disguises and the trickery and everything they did to leave um, Georgia and get to Pennsylvania, and then all they did to get to England... I think, for me, the best part of the story is them never turning their back on those they've left behind and those people that they didn't even know that were enslaved. Them continue to continuing to fight for abolition, yes, because they understood and knew how violent, how abhorrent it was in, as an institution that they had lived through and had to be a part of, but the fact that they continued to work so far away and for so long, you know, 19 years, they didn't go back to the US. They stayed in Britain. They would have, yes, been informed of what was going on. They were able to track down their family members, but they weren't there. They could have very easily forgotten everything that had happened to them and just moved on with their new lives. And they didn't. They continued to look back and lend a helping hand. It's like kind of climbing to the top and then making sure that the ladder is still down so other people can do the same climb that you have. The husband and wife 
pair travelled thousands of miles from enslavement to freedom. And then the travelling didn't stop. Whilst in England, they travelled through Liverpool, London, Leeds, Bristol, Aberdeen, Glasgow and Edinburgh. Um, And then William went as far as West Africa, as I mentioned before, which will be um, something to share in another episode. Um, But they enlisted a transnational audience to turn their ear and their attention to the abolition of US slavery. At that point in Britain, there would have been a bit more of a sensitive ear than if they'd come, I don't know, like 20, 30 years earlier, because um, slavery had been abolished in the colonies um, and in the British colonies um, across the Caribbean. Um, And the slave trade itself had been abolished um, years before that, too. And so British people, um, groups of British abolitionists that were probably there fighting for abolition uh, when it came to Britain, continued to lend an ear and to support that movement financially and otherwise. Um, The Crafts helped organise the London Emancipation Society uh, whilst they continued lecturing across the UK. Um, Ellen also worked um, within women's suffrage organisations in Britain and the women's arm of the British and Foreign Freedmen's Aid Society. At the end of the American Civil War, Um, and the legal emancipation of enslaved people, the Crafts finally were able and felt safe enough to return to Boston in August 1869, at this point having three children that travelled with them. Funded by donations and investments from the British and American abolitionists in 1873, they set up um, a school for children that had been emancipated and regularly suffered from racist attacks um, and needed an education because whilst they were enslaved, they wouldn't have had the privilege of education. Um, So it was called the Woodville Cooperative Farm School and it was in Bryan County, Georgia. Um, And it was there that they continued their work. Their life just continues on in in service to others um, and doing the work to support those who had recently found themselves um, free um, as they were no longer enslaved. Um, It's believed that Ellen passes away in Georgia in 1891. um, So they do get to spend another 30, 20, 30 so years in in the US. Um, And William actually passed away nine years later in 1900 um, at his daughter's house in Charleston. um, And he is said to be buried at the city's Humane and Friendly Society Cemetery. It's only really more recently, so it seems, that Ellen and William Craft have been honoured um, kind of outwardly for their work in the case of Britain, shall we say, in, in British history. Um, so in September 2018 in Ockham, Surrey, where they first found refuge, there was a sign commemorating their escape and that was unveiled at an event and it was attended actually by their great-great-grandson Christopher Clark um, and other descendants that are still alive today. It's really cool that they can trace their legacy back to these brilliant pair um this courageous pair is such a brave pair of people um i don't know yeah i don't know how how they did that honestly um but i think the nature of enslavement would drive anybody to try anything um and for them to have the courage to actually execute that plan and make it to safety and then turn back for others is is just remarkable really um the residence in Hammersmith in London is also commemorated now with a blue plaque um, as part of English heritage. Um, they announced that Craft, and they referred to Ellen Craft and the kind of honouring of women because they don't do that too often, 
Um, but she was one of six women, obviously, along with William, who was being honoured in 2021 with a blue plaque, and their plaque was unveiled in September of that year. Um, I'm not sure how much that connects into the uh, Black Lives Matter movement and, you know, the kind of call to to bring these figures to life in public um, imagination and, and public narratives about black history. Um, however, it is, it is very interesting, I think, that when we think about abolition um and abolition in britain and abolition in the u.s are two different things they happen around 32 years apart when we think about and when we're taught about abolition of of british um and their involvement in enslavement and the abolition of british slavery we think about you know the wilberforces and a lot of white former um slave owners that then decided it was morally wrong to do such a thing and yes you know people like Olade Equiano come into the conversation and the work that they do um is important but it's kind of pushed as like a secondary narrative we don't think about those that were fighting in the Caribbean even though they were you know fighting against the British um the Sam Sharps and the the Paul Bogles and any of the Maroons who yes are all obviously in the Jamaican context but were fighting for abolition um and fighting for their freedom against the British but when we think about um American abolition um and the rights of of black people in America I think and I'm not sure how developed of a point this is in my mind and not just a little mini observation, but it seems as though um, kind of British discourse and narrative is a little bit more comfortable with having African-American abolitionists in it. Um, And I think of people like Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, Ida B. Wells, because of the way that Britain, I think, like to remove themselves from the abhorrent and evil and the violence, pain and suffering they caused in the Caribbean uh, through enslavement, I think by not centering some of those uh, black figures, they don't have to also centre their pain, they don't have to centre their struggles, they don't have to centre the narratives of when they were enslaved under the British. When we think about um, some of the African-American abolitionists, we obviously have to centre their pain, we have to centre their stories, we have to centre what they've said in the narratives that they've written, but it doesn't directly come into tarnish the British reputation because it's like that was America that happened over there it's a completely different thing um so I find it interesting and whilst they are very very rough observations just something I was thinking about as I um thought about this episode um and was doing my research and kind of speaking about William and Ellen Craft today now I did want to leave with a quote from the preface of running a thousand miles for freedom which was published um in 1860 by William Craft with himself and Ellen Craft's um story and basically what happened um in their lives and in their escape Um, And I quote, having heard while in slavery that God made of one blood all nations of men and also that the American Declaration of Independence says that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. We could not understand by what right we were held as chattels. Therefore, we felt perfectly justified in undertaking the dangerous and exciting task of running a thousand miles in order to obtain those rights, which are so vividly set forth in the Declaration. The History Hotline, a direct line to a better understanding of black British history.
The History Hotline is edited and hosted by Deanna Lynn Cook and research is done by Zakia Riaz. To continue to support this podcast, please follow us on social media at The History Hotline on Instagram and at The History HL on Twitter. This podcast is available on all good podcast platforms. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.